So we're at Revelation 21. We're going to think about how it all finishes up, how it all ends. Second thing, this is, and it's ambitious stuff, and I'm a young, thick uh, Yorkshireman, but we're going to talk about you know, big, big endings, and we're also going to talk about the longings of our hearts. Endings, longings of our hearts, and, and we're going to put those two things together. Stay with me. We're going to put those two things together, and we're going to see how Christmas makes sense of both those things, how it all ends and why we have these uh, longings uh, in our hearts. Here's a thought, something to think through. How you perceive your future shapes massively how you live in the present. Let me say that again. How you perceive your future, how you think things are going to pan out at the end, what you think is at the end of the story, shapes massively how you live now, let me give you an illustration. Of, I'll give you two illustrations of how that works out. One is a nice, gentle one, then the other one's a bit more hard-hitting, but I want you to kind of be on page. Imagine two fellas. There could be two brothers. My brother is sat down there uh, going out to do some Christmas shopping, and one brother, let's say Dan, who is my brother, has the promise of a Mackie D's um, at, the end, you know, at the end of a long day's Christmas shopping. A Mackie D's, maybe sit down with a, a glass of... Uh, red wine and watching Star Wars, something like that. And the other brother, let's just say it's me, he's got the ironing to do when he gets home. Uh, so, it, I mean, it could be as I, reckon, I don't know, but I reckon that day could be as long as it would need to be. You know, it could be the most, it could, it could be that story where you go, oh, let's go in the first shop, but let's not buy that thing, even though you know we're going to buy the thing in the end, and just the day drags on and on. It kind of wouldn't matter. If you had that promise at the end, that's, that's kind of what you would need to get you through. Another illustration, and this is a Tim Keller uh, steel, two soldiers at war. Uh, one of them is, has got the promise of his wife and his family all loving and waiting to see him, and the other one finds out uh, that his wife and family have, have all passed away. The hope, there's a, there's a film called The Thin Red Line. Anyone seen The Thin Red Line? It's 20 years, 20 years old now. It's a, a war film. deals more with the psychological aspects of war, and there's this, there's this soldier in it, kind of one of the main characters. There's lots of characters, and it's kind of deep and arty and causes, you know, sturgeon causes you to think, but he finds out at the end, towards the end of the film, the climax of the film, and he's, he's been daydreaming about his wife the whole way through. It's kind of been keeping him going. He drifts off, and he dreams about his beautiful wife, and he thinks, oh, he just hangs on for that, and he gets this letter at the end where his wife tells him that she's found, she can't wait any longer, She's found another guy. She's really sorry. She really shouldn't be doing this to him. And this guy gets this letter. And you can see, I mean, he's kind of well acted and well put together. He kind of, kind of can't even walk. And he kind of crumples. And he just he doesn't get through the other side of the war. Just the fact that his, his hope, the thing that he put his trust in at the end has gone. And he just couldn't focus on right now. So, you know, that's the track. That's the kind of thing that I want us to think about. The endings how it ends, how we perceive it to end, what we're expecting at the end has got massive influence for how we deal with things now. So I'm going to, this passage that we've looked at, uh, I'm going I'm to read it through again. There's kind of three things, I mean, there's, 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 there's hundreds of things in it tell us about what heaven's like. I'm going to tell you three things about what heaven's like, about how it ends, great things. So let's, let's read it through together, see if you can spot where I'm, where I'm headed. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I, I know we've just read it, but it's only seven verses, it's God's word, it's powerful stuff. Uh, a, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, a key, key theological point, the throne saying, God's on his throne now. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, God is sat on his throne here, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. I love that my dad used to say that to me all the time when I was at work. Write this You're not going to forget this. Write this down. God says to John in this revelation of scripture, write this down, John. For these words are trustworthy and true, he said to me. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So three things from that. I love where he starts here. The first thing I'm going to tell you about, call it heaven and eternity with God on the throne, is that there is no see. I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of not where, if I, if I, was, if I had had expectations of what heaven would be, if I was wanting to meet somebody that could tell me what it possibly would be like, I, that wouldn't be anywhere near my primary list of concerns. You know, by the way, there's no sea. It's a bit like walking into a petrol station, and before you get in the door, the guy's like, by the way, we've got no bananas today. You'd be like, well, well thank you for that heads up on the no bananas, but I've just come to get fuel. Do you know what I mean? That's, it's, it's just not anywhere in your outlook. It's, John says right at the start, I need to tell you something right off the bat. There's, you know, maybe if you were, maybe, maybe some of you are planning this, you're planning to get a little cottage by the sea. You like the sound of the sea lapping up on, you know, in the background. You like to be able to walk your dog along the coast. Maybe it's, it is your idea of heaven, but John, you know, it's, it's not there, and a few of you are nodding there. Maybe it is your idea of heaven, but John says right off the bat, there's going to be no sea there. One of the things we've got to do with this, and we kind of have to do this every time, is we have to keep in mind, keep in mind the imagery that's been used in Revelation, but also keep in mind first century, you know, Near East perspective on what the sea is. So the sea, to all of the cultures dotted about, this is not just you know, speaking into Israel and the sort of biblical culture, this is all the cultures that are dotted about Mesopotamia and you know, Samaria and Babylon, all the cultures of the day, there's a sea in a sense that it is this mass of water that we know as the sea, freezing cold, don't put your feet in it. There's also the sense that the sea is this crazy, unknown, disordered chaos. That's kind of the, the view that's held of the sea. So we have, and here's a, here's a verse to tell you, it's not just a cultural perspective, here's a verse from the Bible, it's Isaiah 57, there's tons of Psalms that are of this ilk, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, uh, which cannot rest uh, whose waves cast up mire and mud. It just throws up uh, trouble. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So this imagery right throughout the Bible about how the sea is this sort of chaotic force. Now, we have the benefit of the great Sir David Attenborough, who goes into this, maybe not so much as his age now, but at, he sends out teams who will go into the sea, and they go away for like four years and they put the cameras down there, and they look around, and then from the comfort of our living rooms, we can understand and see why this crazy, big, slimy, horrible thing with 
58 eyes, is actually, is actually a mum and actually quite a nice sea creaturey thing. And is actually, so there's always mating involved in these programs. You know, this is, it's going here to find a partner and all that sort of stuff. And, and you go, oh, that's a nice, you know, look at it ordinarily. You think, oh, that's a bit of an ugly looking thing. But you, you see David Attenborough tell you a story and you, you kind of understand it. But if you live in first century uh, Palestine, if you're a fisherman in first century Palestine and you're, you're riding along, riding along, you do your riding, do you ride along if you're a fisherman and you're going along in your boat and you haul in this big, crazy looking, slobbery, 18 eyed, mess of a thing, you, you look at it and you look across it at your mate and you go, what the, what the heck is this? What on earth is this? And your mate looks back at you and goes, I don't know. And he goes, maybe like, you're kind of working out, you're going, what is, what is down, what is going on down in the bottom of that ocean that produces this? It's just chaos, it's disorder. And then you grab it and it stings you and then you get more angry and you're like, what is going on here? What is this thing? Because you don't understand what it is. Now, um, we can go out as onto the sea, and we've got um, the weather forecast, we've got the shipping forecast, we've got scientific studies. We know why the sea is like it is. If there's a big storm or a tsunami or something, even though it's horrific, it maybe catches us out, we can kind of go, oh yeah, I know why that is. If you're a fisherman, or if you're anywhere near the sea in these early times, and this big tidal wave comes along, it just feels like a conspiracy. You're just like, what is... You've got no, there's no logic, no reason, no order behind it. It just comes out and wipes you out. You don't know what is going on with it. So sea, yeah, it's a mass of water. But at the same time, if we're going to do some good study on it, it's also, they used to describe, um, I remember my old lecturer talking to me about, about this. When things used to come out of the sea that they didn't understand, they would have this term chaos monster. That's what they would describe it as. This is crazy big fish or whatever come out of the sea. You go, this is just a chaos monster. The sea is it's chaotic, so have that in your mind. There's no sea in an eternity with God. There's no chaos. There's plenty of chaos in the world today. And I could have given you any one of a hundred examples, but I guess sort of thinking this out, the, the examples that sprung into my mind that I might, might connect with you would be things like war, people groups fighting, acts of terrorism. So we kind of look round, and it feels to me like this stuff is a bit like sticking your arm in the sea and pulling out some sort of crazy fish that you can't understand because everything about the logical ordered world tells you that we shouldn't really be at war anymore. We shouldn't have terrorism anymore. We shouldn't have knife crime anymore. You know, we've got laws. We've got history. We look back and we've learned, surely we've learned about these things. We've got good governance of this stuff, we've got good systems, haven't we? We've got good peacekeeping organizations, and yet, despite all that, there are still wars. You look on the news, and it just looks like it's chaos. Streets of London, streets of Sheffield, maybe even streets of Leeds, even though we know it doesn't really make sense to carry a knife in the back of your bag, we carry knives in our bags. We, I don't carry a knife in my bag, but you know, you know the picture I'm saying, it happens out there. And it's just chaos. And you're looking at it, you go, how, how is that, how's that still happening? How do we still think that's a good way to live? It's just chaotic. And the outcomes of the chaos, the wars, the terrorism, people carrying knives, as, as one example, is just real hurt for the world, isn't it? Just real, real hurt. The fallout of how painful it is when you watch the news and you 
and it's just it's like two minutes, Channel 4 News, they go to Yemen or somewhere like that, there's this horrible war, you see a bunch of kids walking about, and you think, that is horrible. You hear the story of um, knife crime in London, and there's a mum on the news who's, who's just broken for the whole rest of her life because her son got in a gang and carried a knife, and, and it's chaos, and it, it's disordered, and it's illogical, and it perpetuates itself because war gets more people angry, terrorism gets more people angry, it just carries on the chaos and the hurt overspills, and God says to us through his word, see in heaven, we got there in the end, there will be none of this. No chaos. Just stall on that thought for a second. In our future, by faith we get to heaven. This disorder that kind of breaks our heart, this that just kind of chooses over, that just feels so unfair. Doesn't it feel unfair, the chaos? that You want to look into it and go, surely we can fix this, sort this out. Our eternity will, will not be shaped by that. There will be no chaos, no worried mums, no grieving, nothing like that. That's the first point. There's no chaos. Second point, there's no sadness, there's no tears, there's no sorrow, there's no death. One of, the, one of the hardest things about being a dad, but about just being a human being, um, I think is realizing how little authority you've got in these kind of matters of life and death. It, it's a horrible, uh, it's been for me anyway, a horrible slow realization of, of the fact that, that we've got no authority here. And it's, it's kind of a, for me, it's been a, a lesson learned as a parent. Um, you take your kids and they're crying and they're sad or they're scared of something and there's times when you can just go like that to them and you can stop it. It's an amazing gift that you've got as a dad. You can just stop them crying just by or giving them chocolate. That's a great parental tactic that will stop all sadness, chocolate, screaming, chocolate and just throw chocolate at at the child and and you you can cure this and then as the child gets older there's a little window opportunity actually where I think it's about the age of between four and five, so it soon passes, where you can just literally say, stop crying, brilliant gift, and they stop crying, amazing, we had this with all our children, it doesn't work all the way through and it stops after a certain while, but you can say, stop crying, but then you try that same tactic that you use between the age of about four and five uh, with a, a teenage girl who knows about the world, who's getting as smart as, as you are, and, and that doesn't work, you can't say that anymore, I had a an incident with my, uh, one of my kids, cut her head open, just loads of tears, and I tried the, just stop crying thing, because I thought, I'll go there first. That, uh, I tried chocolate as well, that didn't work. And, she could be, and the reason was, she looked back into my eyes and saw that I, had, I offered nothing. I, my skill set was out here. I had nothing to offer this bleeding child. And she, she cried all the more. I'll never forget, and as long as I live, um, my, my grand marshal, um, just the best grand, in the, in the world, just a wonderful, beautiful, great, ridiculously kind woman. I'll never forget, so long as I live, I was about 22, and she'd had cancer. Um, she pulled it with cancer, and then it looked like she was getting better. Um, you know, it had gone into remission a little bit, and then out of the blue, she was back in hospital, and I can't remember, I think it was just because I had a Fiesta, and I liked to drive, I was 22, liked to drive my Fiesta. I ended up there, sat on her bedside, and it was, it was the same day that she'd found out 
um, some really bad news. And she, I remember clearly looking at the fear in her eyes and she said, they've told me I've just got a couple of months to live. And my reaction was, I can see it as clear as day just now. My reaction was, they said, the doctors told me I've got a couple of months to live. And I think I said something as naive as, let me go and speak to the doctor. I'll, 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 I'll tell him that our story is, I'll reason with him. I couldn't handle that. I didn't have any authority here. I was like, let me go and talk to the doctor. And after I'd talked to the doctor who shut me up, I went back to talk to my gran and I explained to her why she was going to be okay. But it, it's horrible, isn't it? The reality that we have, we've got nothing here. There is an order to this and it sits above us. Death sits above us. We've got no authority over it. Sadness and crying and tears. You know, we can't, it doesn't work to, to just to say, stop doing that. We're under the authority of all this. And God says to us in his word, in an eternity with me, with me on the throne, with me dwelling with you, there will be no more of this. There will be no more of this. No more crying. No more sadness. No more death. And he says, and it's a beautiful line, I will wipe away it's God himself that does it, and I think it's a picture. I think it's a picture. I will wipe away every tear. And so when I, when I scream at Kira and tell her, it's going to be all right, and try and wipe away her tears, and she just carries on crying. It's not like that, because I've got no authority there. But God comes in, and he can say, there's going to be no crying. There's going to be no sadness, no mourning here. Why? And he explains it. I think it's that verse. It's somewhere near there. He said, because, be, because the order of things has changed. This order that exists just now where we come underneath death, beautiful, amazing language. The order of that's going to change, and it won't be like that anymore. Death won't have that dominion over us. That's the second point. Third point, and again, there's loads more. Third point is that our thirst, and again, we need to have our first century hats on as we read through this, our thirst will be quenched. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, great line, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And Jesus, and you read the Gospels, Jesus asked many people if they were thirsty, but he didn't end up getting them, he didn't end up getting them many drinks. Maybe Maybe the wedding at Cana, if you wanted to be pernickety, you could say, well, he got a few drinks there when he turned water into wine. That aside, he didn't get the many drinks. When Jesus talked about thirst, pretty much exclusively, he was talking about something other than just getting a drink, because we already found out there's going to be no sea. So what is, the, what is John writing to us? What is he telling us here when he says that we're not going to thirst anymore? Beautiful last picture I want to leave with you about how Revelation paints the end times with God. There is, there is a bunch of thirsty people, thirsty not, remember the woman at the well that Jesus met when he talked about thirst? I mean, they were at a well, and it's a hot place, but Jesus weren't talking about water. Jesus was talking about righteousness, about right standing with God, about eternal life. People that... People that are thirsty, this is, this is the picture we get of heaven, people, people there who are thirsty for that. People that look around the world, see the wrong in it, or the wrong in themselves, and go, man, 
I know what it's, I, I need that. I don't think we get thirsty in this country anymore. I think there's that much water around. We've got to really run a long way before we're out, you know, before we're getting thirsty. In, the, in this part of the world, you knew about thirst. When Jesus talked about thirst, it was just like, man, I need a drink. The heaven, the last picture I'll give you of heaven, is there is a bunch of people in heaven that are thirsty for righteousness, and their experience of righteousness is not that they don't find it because they understand the cost of it, but they are showered in it. They are deluged in it. So there's no chaos. There is no tears. And our thirst will be quenched. Why? Because the king is there. And crucially in that text, the king is on the throne. That's the theological point. The king's on the throne and he's dwelling there with his people. And it's amazing and it's awesome. So I'm, that's the end. First point. So that's the end of the story. I want to talk to you about um, our longings, the longings of our hearts. So we put this jigsaw together a little bit. Uh, the Bible it suggests, um, asserts, instructs uh, that we have a longing for a perfect eternity. Um, let me pan that out for you a little bit. I think, I think we have already an established worldview that as human beings, we are looking to live in community. I think the Bible in its narrative would put a rider on that and say we are looking for not just community, we're not just looking to be together, we are looking for perfect community. I think that's, that's what the Bible uh, would suggest, sort of big picture stuff. Now you don't need to be, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, in one hand it's a bit of a theological statement, on the other hand you don't need to be a scholar to figure it out. If you, if you read the first couple, and I guess this is what we've been trying to do as we've gone, through, as we looked at Christmas from this angle, look at the start and the end of the Bible. So Paul read out last week from Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, maybe you should do this every time you read your Bible, anyway you're going to go, just read the first couple of pages and the last couple of pages to give you a big picture. At the start it's perfect, God dwells with man, it's a perfect community. At the end, it's perfect. And there is a picture for us, and I think an inference for us to receive, that we are chasing perfect because of that. It's deep within our DNA, and it's at the end of our longings. This is the inferred picture. Let me pan it out for you. So there is this perfect picture at the start. Then Adam and Eve mess up. Cain and Abel come along, and they're the next bunch. Cain kills Abel, first thing he does. So if you know your OT, you ever think through this, first thing he does is he builds it's quite an odd thing to do. When it reads kind of odd, you're like, what's going on here? Cain builds a city. First thing he does, skip on a couple of chapters. The Babylonians, about chapter 9 of Genesis, they build a skyscraper. And you're thinking, this is a, what kind of story is this? And they're looking to build another community. Then skip on again. It's God's people. And the whole, like, whole bulk of the Old Testament is about this bunch of people trying to live in perfect community, trying to find somewhere to live, trying to find rules to live by, trying to be with God, you know, trying to get trying to get the right sort of government system going on. Do we want a king? Do we want a prophet? What do we want? Working through all that and never, that's the story of the Bible, never finding it, searching for it and never finding it. That is, and kind of as I stopped to think about that, I thought, man, that is our, that's our story as people. You know, ideologies have come along, empires have come along, all promising, like all with their own ideas, all with their own structures, perfect community. And it's just never quite, Never quite works out. That's where we are kind of now. Brexit. Who's engaged with Brexit? You're still with, you're still with that? You're still enthused by Brexit? Or you're bored silly of Brexit? But it's all about community. It's all about searching for 
community? Should we, should we be all together with Europe? I'm not looking to, I don't want anyone to hench me or fight. I'm just, these are just suggestions. Are we looking to, are we looking to be, should we be right in it with Europe? Would that, would that be the best kind of community if we've got good trade deals and, and open borders? Or should we uh, separate ourselves and just be the UK? Should we go back a few more hundred years and split up with Scotland and Wales? Again, should we, as Yorkshire, just, <laughs> I think that, wouldn't that be a dream community? Just Yorkshire, they've got a football team now, we're halfway there, just separate ourselves as Yorkshire, or even, like, Wakefield and the Five Towns, they're a pretty good solid bunch, maybe we've got even smaller, oh, and then you think about it, that wouldn't work, we need bigger, and you go round and round in circles, and it's, here's what I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what, what Mrs. May comes up with, it won't be perfect, it doesn't matter how she negotiates, how good a deal she gets, it won't be perfect, because, because why? Because we cry out for perfect community. One of the times, I think, in life where we see this most clearly would be Christmas Day, when if ever there's a time when the community should work, do you know what I mean? It's Christmas Day. It's people that you're supposed to love, people that you're connected to genetically. You should really have something in common and get on with them at some point. You're eating all your you know, the food's awesome. Yorkshire's and pigs in but you know it's awesome food, people you love. It's a short space. It's, you don't have to be all day, does it? It just can be Christmas Day. Can be like two hours. You can you can bracket it. Um, you, should, you exchange gifts. You know it should be. This should be it. This should be utopia. This should be perfect Christmas. We should have perfect community. And yet, what happens on Christmas Day? Even if you've got like, even if you've just bought all your stuff straight out of M&S. Your missus has really rolled it in with a gift. It's a knockout. All the rest of it, everyone, you know, it's just, it's this perfect Christmas picture. Even then, there is always, there's always a, a seat where somebody's been in the past. And somebody will say something like, oh, your, your gran or so-and-so would have loved to have been here. And then there's, a, there's always a little bit of sadness. There's always a little bit of mourning. There's always, a, there's always chaos. You'll flick the news on, there'll be some tragedy or somebody in your own family will fall out and you'll look at it and go, how have, how have we fallen out? It's Christmas Day. And we search for perfect. And sometimes actually I think Christmas reminds us that even on our, you know, even when it should all come together, it doesn't. It's kind of, I think I read somewhere that Christmas Day is the Samaritan's busiest day. On the day that community should be totally found, People cry out more than ever because it's just not quite right. What does this point us to? What does this lead us to think about? These longings we have for perfect, not quite found. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote these words. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, even Christmas Day, he didn't say that, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That was the outcome he got to. So let's just let's segue for a second. Let's just take a rain check. Maybe you're thinking, all right, so you've talked about heaven. You've said that it's perfect. And maybe it is. Maybe it is perfect. I've, I, and maybe, maybe you go with me that far. You'll go, well, I've, I've got notions of heaven and eternity with God and good things at the end. I've got those notions. And if you're telling me that I'm longing for that, well, maybe I'm longing for that, you know, Maybe I'm just sad because somebody I love's died and I'm trying to deal with it. Maybe it's that, but maybe I'm longing. Maybe in the back of my mind, I'm longing for something better. Maybe that's what's happening. But it feels really, 
It just feels, heaven feels a long way away. It feels too distant. And my longings, they're quite faint. I feel like I can't really pin that down. This, those questions, this is why Christmas is so important. Because Christmas, the story of Christmas, makes these distant longings, these faint hopes and dreams, tangible. The story that we see at Christmas, it's not just that, it's not just that Joseph is an awesome dad. It's not just that Mary really pulls it together. It's not just that there's a humble birth. The story is that the king who rules the people, who brings in the kingdom that we see at the end and the beginning has broken into the world. And there is real hope. So, when the wise men, the wise, I love the wise men that rock up at Christmas. I love it when you go and see the, if it's a pantomime or if it's the kids' Christmas production, the wise men come with this crazy oriental music, just like these mystical guys that come from the East. And you're like, what are, they, what are these guys doing? What's, what's, where'd they, how did they, where did they arrive? Where'd they come from? What's their, you know, they come on camels. What, what's their mode of transport? What's going on? And they get there, and it's a baby, or it's a young boy, but they don't bring a shawl. They don't bring chocolate. Uh, they don't bring even greetings from another land or any political allegiances or anything like that. They come with gold, frankincense, and myrrh because, why? Because this is the king. That's what they've realized. This is the king. He's the head of the perfect community, and they fall down and they bow before him. This is the king. He comes as an adult, and he walks into, so read through the Gospels, he walks into the chaos of Palestine and Samaria, where people are just ruined by years of different empires, have been abused, and they are, these people are ready to perpetuate that chaos. They're not a peaceful bunch at the start of following Christ. They are ready for a, they're ready for a Barney with the Romans. They're ready, to, they're ready for somebody, that's what they think they're headed for. And Jesus comes into the chaos with this army that's ready to follow him. They want to say, let's make him king. You know, they are ready to go. And he says, what does he say? Blessed are the merciful. So he sits them all down, Sermon on the Mount. Everyone's there, ready to be roused, ready to perpetuate the chaos, you know, immersed in the chaos. And Jesus pierces the chaos. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And thousands of years pass, and that seed of peace, that demonstration of peace, and that bursting through the chaos, not telling people to get swords, not telling people to to fight, not perpetuating the chaos, but speaking differently into it so that everybody was amazed around him. That breaking into the chaos, that different example, thousands of years later, we all, there's a trail of disciples that look back to it and see the change in the chaos because he's the perfect king. As he walks into sadness and sickness and sorrow and death, he doesn't, he doesn't, Realize, like me, he doesn't offer people chocolate, he doesn't keep walking past, he doesn't shout for them to stop. He, he stops, he lingers, he talks to, 
He heals, he embraces, he forgives, he mends broken hearts, he wipes away tears, he stares death in the face and heals. He's the king that ends sadness as he walks towards his own death, carrying on his shoulders, I would say, the weight of the world and the sin of the world with a plan to make everything right. He does it with a cross that says, what on it? King. King of the Jews. That's what the wise men saw. When they, when they came to see Jesus, they looked at him and they didn't give him the wrong kind of gifts because they recognized that this was the king. This was the king that gives a tangible hope for us looking back 2,000 years later of those dim and distant dreams and hopes that we have. Heaven seems so far away and we kind of long for something perfect. And then we see Christ come at Christmas and with the wise men we can go, man, this is, this is it. This is no more tears. This is no more fear. And it's not just a dim and distant dream. This is somebody who can actually make this real, make this happen. That's the Christmas story. Just as the band come up and, uh, and play us out, I want to leave you with a... Play us out. Is it a gig? What are we at? The band come up. If you want to make the way up, that'd be great. Um, just want to ask you one, quest- one question. What is it that you really want for Christmas this year? What are you after? You're not too old to make lists. If... What would you say, yeah, this is, this is really what I'm after. This is really what I want. So don't just, maybe you've got an idea in your head. I'm going to say to you, just think deeper for a second. Let's just say there's no limits, there's no budget. Miracles are possible. What is it that you would want for Christmas? Have a think about that. I reckon, if, you, if you're doing the math now and if you're working it through, I reckon there's only one gift that's going to meet that need. I hope you find it uh, in the chaos of Christmas.